0: Hey, one more thing before you go. Have you ever wondered if the realms of spirituality and folklore intersect with psychotherapy? How do our ancestors lay a part in who we are today and how we act? In this episode, we're going to explore the intriguing intersection between therapy and spirituality, all while delving into the enchanting world of folklore, mythology, and traditional storytelling. I'm your host, Michael Arnst. Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. My special guest is Ben Stimson. He has a wealth of knowledge in religious studies, medieval and classical studies, folklore, and spirituality, as well as ancestor veneration, which we're going to talk about, in the power of story. He just published a new book, Ancestral Whispers, a guide to building ancestral veneration practice. Welcome to the show. Thank you, you so
1: much for having me. Thank you. Hello. That sounds like a lot, doesn't it? That's quite uh, quite a lot on my plate.
0: <laughs> you're, you're a busy young man. You are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I try busy. to, anyways. Yes. But that's good because, you know, reala- realistically, we have a choice in life. We can just sit around and uh, be a couch potato and, uh, you know, watch TV all day, or we could really delve into the mysteries of the world. And, and Absolutely. Yeah. So you, you took that back. Absolutely. Well, I, um, I'm i very happy that you joined me on here. We've got a lot to talk about in a very short period of time, and we want to try to squeeze mm. in as much as we can because you have an amazing journey. Where'd you grow up?
1: Um, so I grew up, uh, I'm originally from North Wales in the United Kingdom, but when I was eight, I came over to Ontario, Canada, and we lived in one of the small cities for a couple of years before then moving to the middle of nowhere. And so if anybody who's watching this has watched the show Shits Creek, um, very similar to the small town I grew up in, um, maybe not as welcoming, um, but really very similar. Actually, the town that they shot Shits Creek in um, is only a couple of hours Away from where I grew up, so imagine Shits Creek. You can imagine the type of small town I grew up in, um, and then over the years, I, I so I grew up there, and then ended up going to Toronto for a few years, and then some of the other cities, and now I'm back in a small town.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I love Schitt's Creek. My wife and I, that's one of our. Well, I should say my whole family. <laughs> like, or my yeah. we have adult kid about, uh, Let me try that in English. We have adult mm-hmm. children. And uh, Mm. yeah, we love it as a family. It's pretty cool, pretty cool stuff. Um, And knowing that it kind of almost really exists Mm. makes it even better, I think. What is your family like?
1: Um, What's my family like? Mm -hmm. Um, My family is run-of-the-mill very English family I think the more time I say the, the, the older they get the more British they become in many ways although we've been over here for 30 years um, my parents just retired so um, they're really finding that that retirement is like pushing them back into that British mindset um, but uh, but we're all at that age now I have several siblings we're all at that age now where we're in our mid 30s and we all have our own lives so we're starting to drift apart from one Another, and um, I'm planning on moving back to the UK next year. So that's a big move for me. Um, so, so I would say, I would say we're a good family. I would say we're good, um, but we're certainly on our own life paths now.
0: Yeah, I think we all kind of delve into that. And, and in, well, of course, we want our children to grow up and and, and forge their own path and to move mm-hmm. forward in life in a very positive way. Hopefully, we give them the tools Absolutely. that we need that they need in order to do that, and that we're always. A, but once a parent, we're always a parent. So, Yes. <laughs> yeah, um, <clears throat> what do you want to be when you grew up?
1: It's going to sound very strange, but I wanted to—it's going to sound really strange, but um, when I was very, very small, I remember seeing The Flying Nun on television and there was something about flying that i really i was into so i wanted to be a nun until i realized that that was not an opportunity for me um, then i wanted to be an archaeologist and then i wanted to be a um a lawyer at one point and then i went through a titanic phase and i wanted to do deep sea diving and uh and so really when i was a teenager i didn't know what i wanted to be And I feel like I'm doing now what I really wanted to do when I was a teenager, and that is studying classical and medieval history and doing all sorts of nerdy things, writing books and things like that. But um, yeah, when I was a kid, I I definitely wanted to hang out with the uh, with the elephants. That was another big one. I wanted to go and be a zookeeper as well. I wanted to be everything.
0: (laughs) I think. I mean, that's brilliant. Actually, I think that we all (laughs) should have that wondering mind and. Wanting to explore and experience so many things across the world. And mm. who doesn't it? want to be a flying nun? I- that was one of my favorite shows growing up.
1: I know, right? I was I so I I was born nineteen eighty six. So I was around the time when I was ve- like so when I was very very small. A lot of the syndication from the early eighties and the seventies, because then it was like you know just a five or six or ten years um, apart. So a lot of the old eighties shows I remember when they first came around in mm-hmm. syndication. Um, I'm not like the kids today who are watching you know something from the eighties on Netflix, right?
0: Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. But
1: <laughs> Sally Field, something about Sally Field,
0: right? <laughs> I love Sally Field. Now, I will say that I'm of an age where it's okay to have a crush on Sally Field. So There you go. <laughs> so it's good, see? It, it's, but I also grew up with, um, you know, we, we talk about, and we're going to get into this, of course. We all, we all want to believe in magic. We all want to believe in what the possibility of that exists and witches and warlocks. And, you know, it, and even though society... Kind of pushes that away or said that's a big no no. Or the majority of society likes to sequester a witch or a warlock, or, but they embrace shows like Bewitched and I Dream a Genie. And I, yes. I grew up with those. I, be, I grew up with bed knobs and broomsticks, all magic, right? That's all magic. Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins is from Disney. Mary Poppins. Do you think every nanny comes down the chimney with a, or flies in (laughs) with an umbrella, you know, that's obviously magic. So I think that we all kind of crave the necessity or want to believe in magic because it allows us to say, hey, maybe the possibility does exist. I can change my life or something. Absolutely. So Ben, you know, as, as I was saying, you know, we're all kind of enamored by magic and whether or not magic exists. I think even in, you know, folklore, how many, how many stories out there uh, there are of magic? How many television shows or movies are out there about magic? I think we all mm-hmm. want to believe in magic. And, and whether But everybody's afraid of witches and witchcraft or warlocks mm-hmm. and what they can mm-hmm. do to us and voodoo and everything else that's involved in yes. that. Um, what got you interested in mm-hmm. kind of deep diving into the, the, the mystical world and magic and folklore and, and things like that?
1: It's, it's kind of a long story, but it's part and parcel with actually my move from the UK. So the United Kingdom, the culture of the British Isles is still very much medieval in many ways. So many of our cultural heroes, so many of our legendary figures are connected in with with magic it's connected in with um with the medieval culture right um knights in shining armor well every castle in the land has a a set of 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 armor or two or three or ten um you know so many of our landmarks over there are connected in with king arthur or merlin or if you go to sherwood forest just outside nottingham um you'll you know you might encounter um Uh, Robin Hood. You might encounter Sherlock Holmes or Jack the Ripper. There's so many um, aspects of the local landscape that are connected to folklore, and many of those stories tend to involve ghosts and demons and witches and all of these things. It's something that I think in North America you don't tend to have unless you go to places like Salem, Massachusetts, or if you go to New Orleans, or uh, up here in Canada, if you go to Montreal. right? So it's one of those, I think, living in a place surrounded by all of those stories all the time, and then moving over here. What I actually experienced when I moved over here was a form of culture shock. So I was eight and a half years old. I had no control over whether I was, you know, going to move or not. I didn't even have a say. I didn't even realize what a big uh, move this would be. Um, And then suddenly I was plunked down in a, a foreign place, I sounded different. I was different. Everybody around me made me feel different. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so what I did to deal with that feeling of alienation and that feeling of culture shock was I latched on to my culture. And so that culture for me was, Anything, uh, all of the TV shows from Britain on on, on television, um, any of the like British comedies of of the kids shows of that time, which often involved magic and fairies and Merlin and King Arthur and all of those, right? Um, And so it was really one of those things where I I associated magic with being British, and I remember when I was a teenager, like I, I I was so disconnected from that sense of self that, um, to me, this was a safe place. To explore, and around that time, the internet became a big thing. Um, I remember in 2000, we got the internet at home, which was an amazing thing. Um, now, the internet's literally in our pocket, every everywhere we go. But back then, it was it was only accessible in certain forms and through certain means. And so, we got the internet, and I started to explore things like magic, and I, I watched this movie called The Mists of Avalon, which was a mini series based on a, a very famous book. Um, and in it, um, the story told kind of the the view of the Arthurian cycle from the perspective of Morgan le Fay, and uh, and 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 in it, there was this whole whole vision of Britain that was a goddess um, uh, affiliated uh, culture. It was magic filled. It was all of these things, um, and then suddenly I found uh, neo paganism and Wicca. And I thought, and I, I was about 14, 15 when I, I found this. And I, I, I thought to myself, wow, this is an actual thing. People do this for real. And so then I went down the rabbit hole. And here, like what, 20 years later, um, I'm affiliated with one of the major publishers in that field. And, uh, I practice it for myself all uh, pretty much every day. And it's, it's just a normal part of my life now.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. I've watched a lot of uh, British television here as well, and um, I know that there's a slew of programming here that actually originated in Great Britain, but they've remade here, or or kind of redone it here, including, well, Ghost. Ghost is one of our favorite shows. I finally got to see the original from the United Kingdom. Uh, I think it was on each, this is not an endorsement, i think i saw it on mm-hmm. hbo or, or max or something like that i don't remember where i watched it now but it was interesting to watch the how they how they evolved it from there to here for example but mm-hmm. but it still gives me i mean since i was a kid I, we talked about that right before we started you know i think we we're all enamored with magic and, and it bewitched and i dream of Je- now i had different motives for bewitched and i dream genie cuz
1: <laughs> i'm sure you did <laughs> <laughs> yeah you kept going
0: how stupid can you really be? You have somebody <laughs> that can just blink what you want or you know, wiggle their nose. and uh, you're kind of going, stop doing that. Don't do that. <laughs> uh, but you know, you, you grew up with it. I told you uh, earlier about the bed knobs and broomsticks. And you, know, mm-hmm. I think that it was a theory or a book that originated out of Great Britain as well. And um, uh, a brilliant show. And, and it gives you an escape, I think. It gives us an escape when we get to kind of delve up into a fantasy world like that, and say, "Hey, maybe that, maybe Mm. that'll maybe that'll take me away from this."
1: Absolutely, I think that it can often be an escape for some people. I know for a lot of people in the community that I belong to of the communities I belong to, it's also a form of empowerment too. It's kind of like you use it first as an escape from particularly religious trauma. A lot of neo-pagans tend to come from a Christian background where they didn't have a, a a wonderful time growing up, a lot of trauma, a lot of religious trauma there. And so in many ways, it's a, 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 an escape. But through that process, there's an empowerment. And I I know a lot of people who actually come back to reclaim Christianity for themselves um, just in a different way. They they are relying, and this is where my medieval studies interest comes in, They're then reclaiming the aspect of magic that was in Christianity and Christian culture for a very long time, but on their own terms. So it it, it can be a, a very empowering thing too. Yeah. I, I think in many ways the Victorians didn't do us a very good service when it comes to seeing the world through magic lenses. Because we now see it as being, you know, a world of fantasy, a world of, you know, something unreal. But if you go back to the, well, even just the pre-modern or the medieval period or even the classical period or or ancient times, the distinction between mundanity and magic, there was no distinction. Everybody, um, you know, everybody practiced magic in some form, whether it would be going to the church and collecting holy water to sprinkle on your vegetable garden with the hope that then that water is going to bless your garden, right? Things like that is magic if you see it in that way. Otherwise, it's just religion in other ways, right? So it's really an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting paradigm.
0: You know, it's, yeah. I grew up Catholic. I'm not a practicing Catholic any longer, but, mm. you know, it in studying religion myself, a variety of religions, you know, I had seen that, and obviously we, we won't go down that rabbit hole, because could, we could talk for a couple hours on that, but realistically, what my observations were was that, um, you know, we left the Catholic Church for a reason because my parents got divorced, not to give a huge long story. Yeah. but And when they did, then they wouldn't let my mother take communion anymore. And therefore, the kids couldn't take communion kind of a thing. And it was kind of like, well, yeah. you, you really should find another church. In, nice. in my opinion, even at a young age like that, my opinion was that I thought a church was supposed to help you. And I thought a church was to support yeah. you. And I thought they were supposed to be there for you in times like this. And, and I found out that they weren't. So my mother went on a journey in into in different, like she went to Nazarene Church, she went to um, Baptist, Southern Baptist, uh, Presbyterian, I mean, you name it. She went to it mm-hmm. just trying to belong is what she was trying to look for. Which right. I observed that as a child growing up, and I think we all want to belong. And we all want to belong yes. to a community of like-minded individuals that help and and as you said earlier, empower us. So I think that the community, Mm -hmm. we'll say the the magic community, the folklore community, because folklore, as you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but folklore a lot of times is based, are based on, the folklore stories are based on uh, true incidents that took place. And then somebody made a story, and the storyteller spread the story across the land, and it grew into what it has become king arthur they're still looking for king arthur but there's little tidbits here and there that kind of i'm sorry
1: Mm -hmm. oh it said this is the thing this is exactly it right there's little tidbits here and there and i think in many ways what what uh, what you're what you're speaking to there is a very natural form of how cultures grow and evolve what happens this goes back to oral culture what, what needs to happen is when history starts to go outside of living memory, so usually three generations is living memory, um, by then that history starts to either get lost or it needs to transform in order to be remembered. Um, and oftentimes the elements of that history that are important are taken out and they're usually attached then to some kind of a legend, a legendary piece. So we see this with American culture, um, all of the legends of the founding fathers, right? I can't think if it was Samuel Adams or, or George Washington and his famous axe, right? You look at Paul Bunyan going around and spreading apples, uh, apple trees all over the place. Apples uh, are not indigenous to North America, so what what could be useful to explain the presence of all of these apple trees suddenly? Right, there's a figure, Paul Bunyan, who may be really the amalgamation of an entire field of people. An entire um, community of people, um, but he becomes then the focal point, and it's the same with with history in other ways, right? And so I feel like that that process is it's a very natural thing because the community then decides, in a hive mind sort of sense, what elements are important, what needs to be maintained, what needs to be kept, and then through the use of legendary pieces, like you know a very charismatic figure, or through a ghost story, or whatever it it's something that's going to be memorable and entertaining, then the information is retained. Even if it's slightly changed or even if it's grossly changed, the element is still there. And then through the folk culture, the information is retold again and again and again. So it's a very different form of history. We tend to think of history as, you know, facts and it has to be correct and this and all the other. But oftentimes legends turn into myths, Um, And myths are, are identified really as origin stories. And so if the essence of the origin story is true, then it doesn't necessarily matter then how it is remembered in the culture it's still the idea that the the main piece of the information is still true. And so that is important and that then carries through. So it's a really interesting process culturally speaking. Um, And and we see this through material culture, we see this through storytelling, and, and then what becomes, a, a story that is essentially created to keep history, then becomes a communal activity that the community can kind of identify with and find itself within, and then it becomes a co-creative process. It's very fascinating, the dynamic.
0: Yeah, that, yeah it is, very much so. I think that the society, as we know, has the opportunity to evolve and to, mm-hmm. to move f- forward or, or move backward in mm-hmm. some cases, unfortunately, yes. that's happening now. Um. But storytelling will stick with us, I think, throughout whatever takes place. It, it brings us, as you Absolutely. said, there's always origins, even the myths and origins that come through. There's always going to be an or, an origin somewhere. that's had to have been somebody's it came out of somebody's mind, somebody's mouth, somebody's action, or they saw something, everybody's perception as a cop. you understand. The reason we interview as many witnesses as we can of a crime is because everybody's perception of that incident, is different and from a different angle and can provide different clues for for what took place during that time period. Well, same thing, I think, growing up with storytelling, you know, it's, I can't remember that old game we used to play as a kid, where you'd whisper oh, in um, somebody's ear, telephone? Yes.
1: <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> you yes. Know,
0: and then by the end, you're hoping it got to what it's supposed to be, but everybody kind of interprets it a little bit differently, but there's still some origin of what was in it in the first place. Um, it, I, something you said earlier kind of really intrigued me. Um, the fact that you, you practice you practice kind of a magic every day, right? And you practice mm-hmm. that that aspect of it. Do you consider yourself um, a witch or warlock, or from that practical level point, or or is it just something that you kind of implement on a regular basis to benefit your life in a positive manner?
1: Well, I, I I have a strange relationship with that word "witch" because I feel like it's been used so much in different contexts now that it's really lost its kind of historical meaning. So originally, so like magic and magic practice was a uh, a, a very regular part of of of, of ancient and medieval um, Europe and society. Right? There was a big distinction though. There was um, something called cunning craft. And so this is the the village wise woman and the cunning uh, the cunning man um, of the cunning people. And that, that term is being applied now to seemingly all European cultures for a very similar kind of um, profession in society, which was the, the, the village wise person, right? These are people who you would go to, you would pay a small fee, they would use astrology, they would use, which was a science back then, um, and they would use um, kind of the, the tools at their disposal, the magical tools at their disposal um, to benefit society, to benefit their clients, to benefit everything. Um, And oftentimes that form of magic was in alignment with the divine, in in alignment with God. Even if the church didn't necessarily like it, um, it was still culturally seen as being good, right? Mm -hmm. Witches, on the other hand, um, and that translates to many European languages, were often monstrous figures. They were demonic. They were not human. And so it's kind of ironic that you know, the witch trials, the vast majority, well, all of them, um, were uh, practicing Christians who were condemned and killed. There's very, very few um, instances where someone would actually said that they did not, that they were not Christian. So it's it's kind of a weird thing. I, I used to use the word witch for myself, and what I did was witchcraft. Um, but I feel like that's become very it doesn't mean anything anymore and so i tend to see myself as a folk practitioner um as a spiritual practitioner as a magic user and so that for me is a little more comfortable and makes a lot more sense for the type of work that i do um you know, I, I don't just practice like neo-paganism, for example, I'm starting to explore uh, reclaiming aspects of Christianity for myself, which is working with the saints, um, going in and engaging with local shrines and, and engaging with the cultural institution of Christianity. Um, uh, as well as then going to pagan temples, going to sacred sites and and and, and using magic in that way. so but I, I I do tend to use magic a lot I don't tend to call myself a witch um, and the type of magic that I, I I practice is really me instilling my will onto my surroundings tying into kind of what is happening around me all the time anyways and learning how to go with the flow of that. so it isn't you know it isn't necessarily me, um, it isn't necessarily me trying to change reality to fit my will. It is figuring out the loopholes within reality through magical practice that will then, those loopholes will benefit me, if that makes sense.
0: It makes a lot of sense. I mean, we if I think we all sometimes really practice it to a certain perspective. And, and a lot of people Total. don't realize that they're actually doing that. Manifestation, I think, is a part of that. I, You know, I, we... I say we because my family believes in manifesting and believes in saying making something come about, making it come the way it's supposed to.
1: This is exactly it. People don't realize that they're doing it all the time. Whenever you say a little prayer, whenever you say please, 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 you know, if you're looking at God on the ceiling, for example, right, you're saying please, 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 please. That is a form of magic. That is a form of intercessory work, where you're asking a spirit to intercede on your behalf, or a deity to intercede on your behalf. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize that all the lucky stuff that they do, like, you know, the lucky charms that they have, or, you know, the little ritual that they do when they buy lottery tickets, right? That's magic. They don't think of it that way. And that's how in the medieval age and the pre-modern age and the classical age, most people Perform magic; it was just a natural part of their life. They did little rituals here and there, with the hope that it would benefit them. And that's really what magic is. Um, and we, in this rationalistic kind of you know Enlightenment era modern p- phase, we've really divorced ourselves from that. You
0: know, what what, what do you think caused that um, that uh, I won't say disillusionment, but that disconnection mm-hmm. with what we uh, or our ancestors? Which I'm going to go into ancestors here in a few minutes. Um, what do you think was the um, the the catapult to? There were three things.
1: Absolutely, there were three things. So um, the Protestant Reformation, in particular caused what used to be a very collectivist uh culture or set of cultures in europe to suddenly turn individualistic so when and we see this even in other forms of religious traditions around the world as soon as you move from collectivism which is the kind of identifying with the group and finding yourself through the group to individualism, which is the basic Protestant mindset of, I don't need any intercessor between me and God. It needs to be direct. And then, therefore, I need to be in control of my own salvation. Suddenly, you start to get things like capitalism. You start to get kind of this scientific rationalism. And I think in many ways um, that scientific rationalism piece um, is, is what caused many issues. Because if you're only... If you're only going to judge reality based off of what your five senses can, can, can discover, then you're missing out on whole segments of, of reality. And I think that mindset then, especially with like the Industrial Revolution, um, the, uh, the rise of capitalism, really, which is tied to individualism, um, really forced our cultures, mostly in the western west of Europe and Western Hemisphere, to to move away from magical thinking, to move away from this idea of us in relationship with kind of a much larger cosmology, and to center ourselves as the center of the universe. Um, and 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 most traditional thinking that magic is part of, um, and this is worldwide. Most cultures think this way. Um, we see ourselves in relationship and magic and ritual and religion and spirituality as a way of relating to and, and and relating with that grander scheme but in a capitalistic individualistic mindset it's just us so therefore you know if we're not seeing anything then it doesn't exist and that mentality and i think we we see that that issue has has kind of gone into multiple parts of of of, of culture. Um, it's kind of larger than this conversation. But um, does that make sense? Do you know what I mean with that?
0: It does. It makes a lot of sense. I think that, you know, we, it, it, you can see the, even the evolution of that. You can, uh, if, mm. if you really observe it, if you take a look of how society's, as I said earlier, and you and I both know, societies will evolve. If societies will make adaptations, they will adapt and overcome, or they will, they will fail and, and then move on, yes. so to speak. So, from within that, I, 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 do, I do believe that we have become more individualistic. I think there was a pause, and, and I'll I'm probably, I'm probably get some emails for this. COVID was a blessing in disguise, to a certain perspective because Mm -hmm. i think that it and again this is my opinion but i think that the corporate world um kind of had to take note of the fact that maybe that wasn't the norm Mm. you know what i mean it put people back into um my wife worked from home for two years she got to work from home during that time period which Changed the way that we actually lived on a daily basis. So instead of getting up at four in the morning, okay, like we're doing now, we got to sleep until six. And then we got mm-hmm. to go out on the patio in the backyard and we could sit and have a cup of tea. We could listen to the birds. We could talk to the trees. Mm-hmm. Yes, I talk to my trees and my bushes. I do too. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> talk to the trees and the bushes and the birds and the bees and, and the, the hummingbirds and just enjoy and meditate and connect uh-huh. with the universe. And then it was a 30-second commute from there for her to go into where we set up an office for her and go to work, and then we got to have lunch every day. And then, yes. you know, it was a 30-second commute home. Instead of getting up at 4 in the morning and an hour, 50, uh, 45 minutes to an hour to get to work in horrendous yeah. traffic, so, that while I'm watching the news in the morning, it's okay. Every time they have an accident, was my wife involved in mm-hmm. that kind of a situation? It, I know, we, right? we also got to appreciate each other a little bit more and our surroundings yeah. a little bit more. And it's like, maybe this is normal. It's a work life balance. And that work life balance allowed us to become human again. And although we weren't interacting with people outside of the household very much because of what was going on. It allowed mm-hmm. us to value the connections that we have with those loved ones mm-hmm. and, and colleagues and friends that we didn't get to see every day. And, yeah. and, and realize that we were taking those, those relationships like for granted in that perspective. Mm-hmm. And then as they started evolving, then corporations were going, wait a minute. I'm going to sound like a corporate basher, but this is, I think, reality. That's why they had such a mass amount of individuals that left the corporate world and and off on their own because they said, that's not normal. I want to connect with the universe. I want to connect with my, go out and talk to the trees Mm -hmm. and the birds and the bees. I want to have a better work family balance. And I think it brought community back together with us. And I noticed collectively I'm an observer. I learned that as a Mm -hmm. cop. I learned that as going up in a dysfunctional family with two Mm -hmm. alcoholic parents, but I also learned it as a, police officer, law enforcement officer. Mm -hmm. I'm an observer. So in doing Mm -hmm. so, I got to observe people and how they reacted and what they Mm -hmm. did and watch the mentality change. So when it started going back where they're going, okay, well, that's normal. We're going to get back to normal. That's not normal. This is normal. This is normal is hour hour in to work in the traffic, spend eight, eight and a half hours here busting your ass and then Mm -hmm. hour or so on the way home and then you get about three or four hours Shove food down your mouth. Yeah, exactly. Spend time with your family, play with the kids, kiss Mm. your wife, kiss your husband, you know, kiss your boyfriend, kiss your girlfriend, you know, whatever. You you had like a three-hour time period before you had to go to bed and do it all over again. Mm. Exactly. I I started noticing the negativity rise and the depression arise. Yes. And the anger and the resentment and the you see more. More of that coming out. Whereas Mm -hmm. my wife and I delved more in during this time period. She gets to work from home two days a week, and we're grateful for that. Mm -hmm. So I put that out to the universe. We're very grateful for that. So it's only three Mm -hmm. days a week that she has to fight that, which is, as she says, that's still too much. But realistically, (laughs) it allowed us to reconnect with each other in our community in a much better way. So I think from what you were just saying, in regard to that, it also allowed us to reevaluate what our values were, and what go back to what we were doing. Because once she started going back to work, we stopped doing the meditations and we stopped sitting out on the back patio as much as we had to do before. We stopped doing all that because she had to work for five days a week until they finally come up with a plan and said, "Okay, well, you can go back to. Uh, we're going to do this thing as hybrid program." And we're gonna see how that mm, kind right. of a thing. So she went back yeah. to work for like five days a week, and it was like, "Wow!" So now we don't go in the back patio anymore. We didn't meditate anymore. We didn't talk to the birds and the bees anymore. It, it changed yeah. dynamically, immensely, very much so. So I, so yeah, I see where, so. even in those day, in those times, I could still see magic happening during the times mm. that we did were able to do it. The times that we did, we did, we had, we had, we had. Um, bees that would just come up and say hey thanks for the flowers you know they mm-hmm. just buzz around check us out move on to the next yeah. flower or
1: hummingbirds yeah
0: we had hummingbirds yeah. that laying right in front of us just kind of like hey yeah. how's you doing good morning yeah people are going to yeah. think i'm weird
1: but- this is well and but this no this is the thing those that was happening all the time you were just in a place where you could recognize it and you could see it right yeah that's really i think what magical practice has taught me over the years is to it isn't about what we think magical practice is supposed to look like, which yeah. is, you know, casting a circle, meditating in a dark room with cloaks on, right? It's about relationship with reality around us. Yeah. And when we clue into that, when we're able to get out of this five senses that we've been told of the are the ways that we relate to reality we suddenly become aware of all of the other things around us one of the issues of modern technology and i i realize this as we're on a podcast through a computer talking to each other one of the issues with modern technology is that our attention span in the west has decreased so much that we don't actually hear things that are going on right next to us if you go back you know 300 400 years or even 200 years right people were so acutely aware of their environment they could hear the crackling of the fire and know just based on the sound that that fire needed to have to be stoked, they could hear a certain bird calling in in the middle of the afternoon or something like that, and know that there was, you know, maybe a deer close by or whatever it was. Right? There, there was a connection with the local landscape, and there was a local, there was a connection and 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 uh, and relationship with that environment, um, and and magic was happening there, but it wasn't. It, it was mundane. Right. What we see, I think, is magic now, um, which is like one of the big things I work on with myself and some of my clients is that idea of synchronicity is, is cluing into those weird uh, situations that we might find ourselves in where something happens and it is so coincidental that it just throws us off. Sometimes we don't even become aware of that sort of stuff unless we're really paying attention. And I think it's a lot easier to pay attention to ourselves, to what we're feeling and thinking, to whatever it is, um, to our environments, when we don't have this barrage of you know, needing to constantly work, the stress of all of that, the stress of having you know multiple computers on all the time buzzing and and creating background noise, light pollution, right? All of this thing of modern technology that, or, or this modern lifestyle that we lead, that is telling us that this is really what you know, advanced living is. Well, you know, yes, 200 years ago, you know, we didn't have the antibiotics that we have now, but. There's a lot more connection and I think it was a lot more connection with people too. what I've noticed to pick up on something that you were talking about there um, is that one thing with the pandemic is it shocked the whole world and it shocked many people in the West who um, they they've never encountered um, disease on that scale before. They've never encountered death on that scale before, you know, six million people worldwide are just gone. In the span of two years, six million people, and I think that 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 is still rising. There are still people dying from COVID, right? Um, but it shocked a lot of people. And it shocked people because it disrupted all of the things that they would just normally do and 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 you know take for granted. Um, we saw this particularly with mourning practices and funeral practices, but even just the ways that we connect. Suddenly, we were forced to all be online and connect online um, because we 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 couldn't connect in in ways. And I think that in many ways that taught us how important connection is and taking a moment and 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 spending time with each other. Um, even if it's just you and your partner, or even if it's just you and your family, you know, learning it to spend the actual time instead of, you know, being on the phone while being in the same room with people, right? And that's magic. And I think uh, the circles that I run in. I see a lot of people, particularly the queer community. So, a lot of my my um, witchy kind of magical practitioner friends, um, who are also interested in ancestor work. Ironically, um, they tend to be uh, queer people in their 30s who are like me, and i see a lot more interest in going back into nature and you know harvesting like rowan berries a load of my friends uh, just a few weeks ago went and collected rowan berries in order to create charms for protection of their home and for them it was a whole day out they all went into the woods found rowan trees Harvested and spent the day just exploring nature, and that was a great. I mean, you know, a couple of my friends work in corporate; they never get a chance to do that one in their regular lives, right? So it's an escape, but it's also an empowerment piece, um, and it's it's really it's really big. I feel like a lot of people are interested in in ancestor work for that because they're interested in the stories and the lifestyles of their ancestors, um, and and how they can bring those into the today's world to be in a healthy place. But as a colleague of mine uh, uh, said, I think the danger of ancestor work, and I talk about this in my own book, is um, oftentimes we can get lost in the story of our elders, and we're not living our own story. That's the next step, is to l- live our own story.
0: From that perspective. That, talking about that, I mean, it's profound what you just said. I agree with all of that. I think that, um, it is something that we you could walk into a restaurant and you see a family of individuals and everybody's got their nose in the phone instead of having a conversation, mm-hmm. which is really disappointing from that perspective. Now, yes, I am an old guy and um, I won't say how old, but we'll just say I'm wise. <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of one of those things that I think people have forgotten to have a uh, communication to, to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. They, they've forgotten that. in. And yes, they do need to, I agree with you, they need to kind of put the phone down. Mm. Yes, we are, put the phone down after you watch this episode.
1: <laughs> but, yes, that's a big important piece. <laughs> yes, they put
0: it down after you watch the episode. Mm. But um, yeah, realistically, I think. Um, you mentioned earlier about connection with, ans- with our ancestors. I think we all mm. desire a connection with our ancestors, you know, I <clears throat> I've been on a, on a journey myself since I was a kid, actually, of trying to connect with my ancestors. And I, I run into dead ends because, know. you know, and it, it gets frustrating. I think that uh, I agree with you. I did not have a relationship with my, my father died when he, uh, I'm not, I won't say how old, I was 15 years old. He was a very young man. He died at 39 years old. So, mm. and before that, <clears throat> he had a very tough life. Um, he had a stepfather that he grew up with. So I never knew my biological grandfather, for example. And and, and, and this is obviously nothing not a genealogical thing we're discussing, but understanding your book, and I read a, a good portion of your book. I'm not done with it yet, but the reality is I think we all want that connection. So I always wanted to know where I came from. I know where I came from on my, my mother's side. I had my grandparents, my great-grandparents on my mother's side. On my father's yeah. side... I didn't have my grandfather, nor did I have my great-great-grandfather, nor did I have my great-great-grandfather. In fact, right. I had to find all of that out by myself, hmm. because my grandfather, on my father's side, died at 27 years old, so hmm. there wasn't much for my My father was three, so all he hmm. knew was a stepfather, right? And he didn't have the story other than the guy died in jail. Well, ah. I haven't covered a longer story as to why and what happened there. <coughs> Excuse me. But from that perspective, I was able to find my great-great-grandfather. And then from the great-great-grandfather, I found my three great, my third great, my great-great-great-grandfather and grandmother. And then I found out things like my great-great-great-grandmother was a very, very prolific um, market she she owned a marketplace in the middle of Pittsburgh, and oh, that's excellent. She was kind of wealthy at that time mm-hmm. for a woman, and, and when I say this, mm-hmm. you understand this, and I'll clarify myself to make sure. the The fact that this was in the eighteen hundreds, in the mid eight to late eighteen hundreds, for a woman to mm-hmm. own her own business and to make yes. a large amount of money was almost unheard of, it because that day and time women mm-hmm. didn't do that so but that's as far as i could get so even after 40 50 years and now i'm giving myself away a little bit after about 50 <laughs> years of, of seeking them in, in trying to connect with my ancestors you know the desire is still there because i think that i i i want and i desire connection with my ancestors for many reasons but we don't always get that opportunity you've had that opportunity to kind of explore your ancestry um, uh, connections and to understand, which there's a word here that I, I want everybody to kind of understand. Um, in doing in doing your research for your ancestors, what how does ancestor veneration play into that? And what mm-hmm. is ancestor veneration? Can we talk a few minutes about that?
1: Absolutely. So a very common question, because we're not used to this idea of veneration um, Unless you're Catholic, and I think that's a good way into this conversation, so ancestor worship around the world is a very large part of many cultures. Regardless of kind of you know where you find yourself, it's found on most continents. Um, we may not use that word worship we may not use that word venerate because those have very loaded meanings Um, but essentially that is exactly what the relationships are with those between those communities and their ancestors so ancestor veneration is different from ancestor mourning because mourning practices and i think this is this ties back to that whole individualism piece we were talking about before i think the western world particularly north america and and europe um and and, and kind of protestant europe has been so divorced from the idea of death for about 100 years now because of the funeral industry and what has happened is we are so divorced from death that we hyper fixate on mourning because we actually don't really understand what death is or what comes after it right there's some religious sense there's some religious senses of what might happen but on a general cultural popular cultural level we're, we're still very unsure and and so we tend to focus mostly on the mourning practices and the mourning traditions grieving practices because of our individualistic senses in the culture. We focus mostly when somebody dies, what is often one of the stages that people go through? How could they do this to me? <laughs>
0: exactly. Why did why, you leave me? They,
1: why did you leave me? Right? It's all about us. That's that individualism piece, right? And that. It happens in other cultures, absolutely, but it's in a different sense. It's understood differently. The main difference then between veneration and mourning is mourning is you're grieving a loss. You're grieving that individual disappearing and not being around anymore. Veneration on the other hand is a whole spiritual viewpoint, which sees the ancestors as still being accessible still being here, still being, we're still capable of interacting with them. It's just the the way that we do that is now different. The way that we do that is through a spiritual sense, as opposed to a, you know, going in and sitting down and having a cup of tea with with grandma, right? Instead of grandma being in the living room, she's now in the ancestor shrine on, on near the front door, for example, right? It's that sense of we're honoring not just the kind of the individuals, but we're honoring the collective. So I think this is why we see ancestor veneration a lot more in collectivist cultures than we do in individualistic cultures. Um, and it's interesting because in some cultures that are in the process of transforming like Japan, for example. Japan is in the midst since kind of the Second World War and since the boom of the 80s into transferring into a individualistic nation away from a collectivist nation. And a lot of the younger generation in Japan are unsure really what to do with their ancestor work because it was something that their grandparents did and never taught them. And so it was it's a weird kind of thing that we see, we see particularly happening in that country. Um, but yeah, veneration is that relating to the ancestors, relating to the spirits of the dead, as understanding that they are still here with us in a very real sense, as opposed to being in some distant, remote, vague afterlife. And I think that then that main piece switches then and changes how we then relate to each other, how we relate to them, how they relate to us, how we relate to then community. Um, and yeah, so, so in, in Cole's notes, that's really the big difference between them. And so, how do you relate to um, how do you relate to these dead people or these ancestors? Is through ritual practice? Is through spiritual practice? Is through prayers? Is through offerings? Some form of like a a, a robust uh, practice, and in that way, then all of the elements of that practice becomes a form of communication. Um, That's really the understanding that I've come to in my life, is that ritual is really communication. Um, And so like when you go to church, when you go to cathedral, whatever, and you are performing all of the the rituals of of that religion, um, you're actually communicating with the spirits, the saints, the angels, God, right? It's the same way that when spiritual practice happens in in ancestral veneration. Uh, it, it often it lies in parallel to other religious traditions so often it lies just underneath the surface or it's within the, the community but it's not directly connected with the major, major religion um, interestingly a lot of the accessible traditions that we, we know of in our culture um, come from Catholic South America so the movie Coco for example and the Day of the Dead celebrations is a really uh, good example of what ancestor veneration looks like you've got the uh, elements that existed before Catholicism in the Mayan and the Azteca um, uh, uh, pre-Christian religions being syncretized with the Day of the Dead that was brought in by Catholicism and then suddenly you have this beautiful tradition of the three days of the year where the ancestors are are said to come into the living space and you treat them like they're there and they are there because you're not only remembering them but you're honoring them and you're telling the stories of them and you're welcoming them with all of the foods that they loved, with their pictures and, and it's a celebration. So I think that is again one of those key differences. Mourning and grieving is about loss. Veneration and worship and and, and, and honoring the dead is about celebrating and seeing them as still being accessible. That's amazing. That <laughs> yeah, that's
0: amazing. I think from that perspective, it allows us to you know, I again growing up Catholic, I I again I'm not practicing Catholic because I'm more of a spiritualistic individual and But I still believe in angels, and I talk to angels every day. Mm. And I talk Mm -hmm. to my guardian angels, I talk to my guides, I talk, you know, this kind of perspective. I had to evolve Mm -hmm. myself in understanding that, because growing up in an environment where death was taboo, you know, my great-grandfather died when I was was probably 10, and I Mm -hmm. asked, why did Grandpa Nubin die? what happened to him and they just said he just died from old age and he's an old man. And yeah. I tried to explore more of that and nobody would give me an answer, they just said well that's just what mm-hmm. happened. And then you know you just got to be sad and you know you you we're going to go to a funeral, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and don't say much to grandma, just let her mourn, let her cry, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of a thing. <laughs>
1: But this is the thing. That's exactly it. What <laughs> happens in our culture is that we don't talk about the dead. After they're gone, they're gone. And don't, don't talk about them because you'll upset people, right? In other cultures, meanwhile, you've got big pictures and parades and celebrations and, <laughs> you know, talking like every year there's an anniversary of the death. You know, they talk about it all the time, right? Doesn't okay. mean that the grief isn't there.
0: Exactly, and realistically, if our we if our ancestors weren't there, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> so this is we, too, we right, owe yeah. them something. <laughs> yeah, theoretically, yeah. theoretically. Well, I you know I'm sorry that, I
1: cut you off though. You you were going to say.
0: Oh, that's okay. I, I don't remember what I was going to say, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> it you know I, I was just uh, I think I was going to say. You know, realistically, I think you know in. In evolving in myself and growing, and as I grew up, and uh, the more I got involved in like law enforcement, where I lost—when uh, I say I lost, there—you know—I went to unattended deaths, I went to traffic accident victims, I went to, nice. <clears throat> you know, different people, assault, it, many people that died that that I was the last person they saw when they died, kind of a situation. So, in watching yeah. that process from that perspective, and then delivering messages and things like that, I got more. I got closer to the process of death a little bit more than I really wanted to, but you know, yeah. at, at the same time, I value those experiences because it gave me a new perspective on many things, including life can change in an instant, and in that you should love the people that you you love, and you should tell them what you want to tell them before there isn't a chance to do it anymore. Um, again, yeah. one more thing before you go. So, I uh, I agree with with your your perspective of, of veneration. I do understand the cultures that that represent themselves in in honoring their ancestors in such a way. I am sad about Japan. I follow um, uh, the Blue Zone Diet from way back okay. when it first came out. And I've had this book about Okinawa. And mm-hmm. I watched the documentary, this is just a real quick introduction um, about what it'll validate what you were saying. <clears throat> When I bought the first book that I bought about the Okinawan diet, because I have a disease, I have, a, I have an autoimmune disease, and I manage that with diet and food. So I thought, well, what a better way to do this is to kind of investigate this. So I got this book called The Okinawan Diet. I started reading about that and how they eat and longevity and the fact that in Okinawa they used to be the longest living human beings on earth. And why? Mm-hmm. So I've been following them for quite some time. And, and then this guy came out, Bueller, who... Dan Bruehler, who wrote The Blue Zone Diet, and he did a documentary on Netflix about it uh, mm-hmm. just recently. And um, it's a great documentary. People should watch it, especially if you want to get healthy and you want to understand food and how it affects your body and the connection to food and to family because the places that the people live the longest are mm-hmm. places that, this just to emphasize what you said, are communities that support each other and their families yes. and respect their elders and take care of each other mm. from that perspective and honor their ancestors at, as, as they are and who they are and where they came from. They don't forget them. They, they continue to nurture them. They don't, Very much I'm so. a soapbox, especially the United States, they have a severe problem with saying, if you're old, we're just gonna put you in a home. This Let them the worry about you. Yeah, kind of situation forgetting, forgetting that. So you coming up with this book and writing this book, for example, mm-hmm. is a fantastic opportunity for people to understand. You know, you know my uh, my artwork for the podcast is the Tree of Life. Hmm. So your book resonated with it. me because you integrated the Tree of yeah. Life within that. So yeah. it is a an opportunity for individuals to explore the fact that we seem to value our relationship with our ancestors and where they came from, where, why we're here, and what we're here for. Because our, if it wasn't for our ancestors, we wouldn't be here.
1: This is the thing. And this is where it gets to the second piece, which is about legacy. This is why individualism, I think, is such a bane to the planet. Because okay. if we are taught, since we were very young, in a capitalist system, that in order to get ahead, We need to be the best, the brightest, all of us. We have to outmatch everybody else. We have to be on top, right? I mean, look at Donald Trump. He is the avatar of that capitalism narcissism, um, where it doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. You need to be the one on top because that's then you being valuable. But valuable to who, right? In collectivist cultures, your value is derived for how much you are able to do for the community. But if all members of the community are doing that, then the community is supportive, right? I, I, where I live, um, we have a lot of Mennonite uh, communities up in, in my area. And that community in particular, particularly the old order men in that community, they don't use banks, they use credit unions. And whenever a, uh, you know, a young couple is, is ready to hive off and start their own family, oftentimes they will buy property using the credit union. And so the credit union owns the house, but they're, they're you know, using the land, they're building their family and so on and so on. And the community supports. And the amount of growth that they're able to do in that community is astounding. But I think the real issue with individualism, and this is the real danger here, is that if we are told that we have to be the best and the brightest and we have to get on top and we have to succeed all the time as an individual, then death as the ultimate thing that we don't have control over and the end to that is, uh, is going to cause us issues, right? And so I think that's perhaps why culturally we fear death so much. Because if we don't have regular connections and good connections with our, our, our community, and the running narrative is that growing old is a bad thing because suddenly, um, you, well, you will eventually not be as successful as you are. You will eventually not be as, um, useful to society as you are. Then, you're not going to be you're you're nothing and therefore let somebody else take care of you right um versus collectivist cultures where your your uh, contribution to the community is honored your wisdom and your guidance and your ability to have that perspective that young people who are younger don't have is honored and you are taken care of when i was in social I, i trained in social work years ago and I did a placement at a Polish retirement home in Toronto and it was a long-term care home and a retirement home and it was uh, it was uh, it was operated by a credit union it was connected with a Catholic church fair and uh, and it was kind of cool because I'm not Catholic so it was the very first time I ever sat through a Catholic Mass and it was in Polish and I had no idea how to stand or what to do it was hilarious but anyways the uh, the priest was very forgiving but um, but within that culture, It is so out of the norm it's like italian culture it's like any of the southern european or catholic european cultures right um it is so out of the norm that you put your elders into a home because normally your elders would be in the same home for you as you right yep and so it was fascinating to hear from the social workers and from even some of the family members and even some of the, the residents there, what it was like for them to be in this environment. And they said, it's amazing because this is community. They have a priest come in every day to mm-hmm. say mass. They have family members who are coming in all the time. Many of the people who are residents in there, they remember a lot of the other family members um, from church and from the community, local community. And so it feels like they're just in a big community center. They just happen to have a bed in a big community center, right? That's very different from the Western style homes that you go into and it's like, you know, shady pines, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah. Unfortunately, you are correct. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, it's interesting.
0: We took, um, we brought uh, Diane's father in with us uh, the last 18 months of his life to take care of him. He, we brought him, mm-hmm. moved him here from Colorado. and. He had been diagnosed with misdiagnosed with Parkinson's and it turns out he had Lewy body dementia, but Mm -hmm. it gave us an interesting perspective on um, being able to spend time with him before he passed. And the kids, you know, his grandkids, his grandkids, our kids, got to come in and see him and spend time with him, and it was valuable. It was Mm -hmm. valuable. I mean, obviously, watching somebody die slowly like that is, is is an experience that I wouldn't wish upon anybody, but you also had the experience of understanding that you got to be there with your loved one through the end, and you've got to give them love and show them that you love them prior to them dying, that you didn't just discard them. So, yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. Let's talk a little bit about your book.
1: (laughs) Of course. Um, so my book is, uh, just came out in, in, um, September. Um, you can go to benstimpson.com and the book is called Ancestral Whispers, a Guide to Building Ancestral Veneration Practices. And really what it is, is it is a call to individuals to understand their worldview, their beliefs, their mindset. Um, because I feel like a lot of people are, are interested in working with the ancestors, but don't know how. Now, what was important with my book is that I don't give anybody a route to what to do. That's really the, the hard work for you to do. But when you do that work, you take ownership of your spirituality and your practice in a much deeper way than if I were to give you a ritual or if I were to give you a way to set up an altar or stuff like that, right? So the book is uh, it's a, a guidebook in that I take people through various aspects of a lived spiritual practice with a lot of questions, a lot of uh, journal prompts in there, and a lot of examples from around the world of how many other cultures that have ancestral um, kind of spiritual practices in integrated into, into, into a community, integrated into personal practice, um, so that people can glean a sense of, of perspective. And then the question is then, what do you want to do with this? Right, you want to work with the ancestors. Well, why? What What is it about the ancestors that you want to work with? What is driving you to engaging with this form of spirituality? Um, and 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 so really, I put the ball in other people's court. Um, I also have a podcast too. People who are listening to this won't see that, but I have a a podcast called uh, Essence with Ben Stimson, and uh, I interview many, many individuals from the pagan and Wiccan and witch community, Um, a lot of folkloric witches lately particularly around um, integrating aspects of uh, of personal identity and and growing and grow through that process and through these practices. Um, so you can find all of this out, and you can go to my website, benstimpson.com, and that has information about the podcast, about my offerings, about my book. I do also have classes available, and I'm just about to launch a series of classes through Udemy as well. Um, so that's all, that will also be on my website too
0: standing and I'll make sure that everybody, there's a link in the show notes for you, you to be able Perfect. to connect with just a push of a button, and that way they can get you quick and easy, mm-hmm. including your podcast, and um, as well as where you can buy the book. Um, Thank you. For those that are, those that are listening, please say the name of your book again.
1: Oh, um, Ancestral Whispers, A Guide to Developing Ancestral Veneration Practices. And that's out through Llewellyn, and it's uh, available. Actually, if you go to the Llewellyn website, you can read the first couple of chapters for free, um, and uh, and that will give you a sense of what the book's about.
0: Outstanding. Uh, I've, read, I've read a good portion of that book. It's a wonderful opportunity for you to be able to have a better understanding <clears throat> of your connection with your ancestors and um, how it can benefit you. So, yes, you should go out and do it. And absolutely go listen to the podcast. I've listened to it as well. It's really good. Uh, ben, thank you very much. I really appreciate you and I connecting. I think that uh, you have an invaluable journey. I could talk to you for another hour, maybe two. I know. <laughs> I was seeing the
1: time. I was like, oh, we're a little over time already. But uh, oh, this that's has been a... delightful. Thank you so much.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I think that uh, uh, we should we should embark on another conversation maybe next year and and maybe kind of explore a little bit more of what we didn't get to talk about yet because mm. what a fascinating fascinating opportunity for people here to really get an understanding of spirituality and the connection and our ancestors and magic and how we all perform within that, within an arena. Um, This is one more thing before you go. So before we go, do you have any words of wisdom you can share?
1: Absolutely. To really encapsulate everything we've talked about today, um, I work a lot with narrative therapy and I often come back to this with clients the story is most important thing, and that is the story we tell ourselves, the story that society is telling us, the story that we tell about other people, and how all of those stories relate. And those stories can often be re-edited depending upon our, our lenses that we're looking out. To. So focusing on the story, think about your story, think about the story that you're involved in and that you don't want to be involved in. And I think that's the essence of spirituality for me.
0: That's very cool. Very brilliant words of wisdom. Thank you very much. Thank you. thank you Again, Ben, thank you very much for sharing uh, like invaluable insights on the intersection of spirituality and therapy, as well as the significance of folklore mythology. Um, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. I hope that we've enlightened you all out there listening and watching and that you found it as fascinating as I did. Open my eyes a little bit more today. So again, I appreciate you very much. And for all of you out there, please, One More Thing Before You Go, have a great day, have a great week, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go. Check out our website at BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening
1: platform.